the donkey Do the dog Don't be a jerk Do the dog What should you work for? From California. Charles, are you there on the line? I am. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for um, uh, being here via phone for this, uh, this, this 
broadcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and the occasion is, and, and congratulations, the publication of your first novel, American Weather, um, out with Random House UK, uh, just this June. Uh-huh. Really. So hot off the press. That's right. And, <laughs> and you had you had a, a it's it's kind of people may have been adjusting their radios then because I said it was out with Random House UK. So you have a London publisher um, for for American weather. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It has been um, uh, an interesting path to publication. And uh, um, uh, it, it ultimately meant that uh, my debut novel found a home overseas before it did here. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a, a pretty un, uncommon uh, turn of events, I suppose. You've always been, you know, a unique one walking the path less <laughs> traveled, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm in your camp. I'm in your camp, Charles. Um, Thank you. Before we go any further, I'll read I'll read your bio from your website, charlesmcleod.org. Yes, um, I'm an organization. <laughs> I'm, I've, I've transcended being a person. And I'm just... Yeah, uh, what, what, what is that about, actually? I, I think charlesmcleod.com was, was being used by someone else, so I decided to um, dehumanize myself <laughs> and become my, my own organization, and then hopefully I can, I can somehow become the first um, singular person who's a nonprofit or something like that. I hope to get... Um, like a, a, a 501c3 tattoo on me or something, and then I can start getting federal and local grants. They, people don't know how funny that actually is. I mean, uh-huh. connecting to after, uh, unless they've read American Weather, <laughs> and also I've, I first met you in the interest of full disclosure um, years back at Richard Hugo House yes. when you were um, you were actually writing grants, helping Hugo House to get some money there. So you're very familiar with that uh, 501c3 thing that you said there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And if there's if there's somehow Seattle listeners actually listening to this, you should go out to Richard Hugo House this week. I think they're still doing their um their their week long series with many good writers talking about writing. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful place. It is on eleventh, eleventh Avenue, up there on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so after that unplanned uh plug for Richard Hugo House, that's near and dear to our hearts um as ever. Uh let's go to your, your bio, Charles. Sure. Charles McLeod's fiction has appeared in publications including Alaska Quarterly Review, Conjunctions, Cut Bank, Dossier, 1111, The Gettysburg Review, The Iowa Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, Midwestern Gothic, Post Road, The Pushcart Prize, Best of the Small Presses, Third Coast, and Ziziva. A Hoynes Fellow while earning his MFA at the University of Virginia, he has also received fellowships from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, San Jose State University, where he was a Steinbeck Fellow, and the Gentile Artists Residency Program. His first novel, American Weather, is out now from Random House UK, Harville Secker. Random House UK Vintage will publish National Treasures, a collection of stories, in June 2012. He is seeking U.S. representation on a trio of manuscripts. And... We'll certainly, we'll certainly get to that, won't we? Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> um, but first of all, let's just uh, kind of check in here with your your Michigan connection. Really, you've you've had you've you've had uh, some welcome welcome arms uh, for your work here in Michigan. Indeed, I've been I've been lucky enough to have three stories published by by Michigan-based lit mags. Um, uh, Third Coast, uh, which is Western Michigan University's. Uh, 
uh, literary magazine, they took one, and Michigan Quarterly Review, uh, which is University of Michigan, Slip Mag took one, and uh, Midwestern Gothic is is also based out of Ann Arbor and is a, a pretty much a brand new journal. They just put out their second issue, which is their summer 2011 issue, and uh, it is a wonderful publication. I can't say enough good things about it. It's uh, completely Midwest-themed and Midwest-oriented. And um, on top of having just a fantastic magazine, they have a really great website, too, where they have um, uh, sort of brief uh, contributors' bios type type things, and then they have tons and tons and tons of great Midwestern uh, Midwestern pictures. So it's well worth checking out. Oh, that's great! And so, and Charles, so did you? Did did they ask you to write something um, something more uh, to to go with the story that they picked for um, the site? They itself, they or? sort of explained what um, uh, what their thematic mission was, I guess. And an awful lot of my a lot a lot of my short stories take place in the Midwest. Um, I've lived in both. Iowa and Illinois, never Michigan. Uh, but, not yet. Um, not yet. <laughs> not not yet. I but um, so I I had um, I had a story that that hadn't been published yet that I sent to them and and uh, I was fortunate enough to have it included in the first issue. Wonderful. So in their their inaugural issue, Charles McLeod, a part of it, and then for for MQR for the Michigan Quarterly Review. Um, what, which story was placed there? Is that one that will be in your upcoming collection, National Treasures? Yes, it will be. It's a story called The State Bird of Minnesota. And um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, uh, so it's, it's Midwest as well, not Michigan. But um, uh, it's about a guy who sort of leaves Minneapolis and winds up spending a winter up in a cabin by himself in, in Minnesota and meets um, an interesting individual that goes on to, to have... Um, uh, sort of criminal fame, we'll say. Yeah, and it will also actually be included in um, uh, New Stories from the Midwest, which is an anthology that will come out in fall of 2012 from Indiana University Press. Oh, great. So many things on the horizon here, Charles. So, um, well, well, let's talk a little bit about your path, because um, you... uh, you went to an MFA program at the University of Virginia. Um, that part we know from your bio. Um, when when did you know that writing was going to be something that wouldn't let go of you? Um, sure. Um, I think that uh, I, I imagined it, it might be that way as, as far back as high school, but I... Um, I did my undergraduate at University of Iowa, and I I had imagined at one point that I was going to be a poet, and uh, then I, I finally took a, a fiction writing workshop while while I was an undergrad at Iowa, and loved it, and figured out that that was indeed um, what I wanted to do uh, forever, you know, and that and then at that point it really it really wouldn't let go of me. Um, and, and I wrote an awful lot my last two years as an undergrad. Uh, I stayed in Iowa City for another year to to play um, to play music in the band that I was in. And um, uh, oh, too bad we don't have a track to play from 
from your band. Oh, that's okay. But the name of the band is Burn Disco Burn. I think you can. I think you can find um, when. Uh, I think you can find a full length on iTunes. You should go check it out. It's wonderful indie pop music. We could open for Death Cab for Cutie anytime. I'm sure of it. <laughs> so, so hopefully, um, and if we're anyone's... ready to for Bright for Bright Paycheck. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So. Uh, there were a few. There were a couple of years where where writing was sort of minimized after undergrad, but it, it I kept doing it and um, uh, went back and got my MFA at Virginia the year after I was living in Seattle and you and I met and have been working hard at it ever since. And and do you, are you also because um, because what was it about that moment um, in the fiction workshop with like what was it about that. It feels almost like there was like a little magic dust sprinkled down on something you were able to do with stories um, that maybe you you weren't already doing in poems or what? sure I, I think that it it uh, provided something near to a, a foundation for language that I wasn't quite finding with with poetry and I'm also not sure in some ways if I'm uh, sort of a miniaturist in in regard to to language mm. that, that I feel. Um, poets, poets have to be. I, um, while, while plot is not necessarily at, at the forefront of, of my thinking when I'm thinking about prose, um, voice and language, I would say, trump, trump plot in, in my writing. Uh, regardless, having that sort of um, plot foundation, I guess, in place really, really seemed to, to make everything uh, click. In, in a way that where poetry was just simply sort of too free form for me or something. And yes, because it seems like from uh, I haven't um, I haven't got a copy yet of National Treasures, although I'm excited. I'm looking forward to that. But in American Weather, it seems like um, and we'll be hearing a, a, a bit from it um, in the in the next quarter of the program. Um, it seems like it's an accumulation like you are. There's a, a lot of listing and, and it's like you couldn't. It's the effect that you need is to keep pushing um, and, and with your your fiction allows for that in the novel um absolutely and uh and and that's sort of tied into the idea of the protagonist in american weather uh he owns his own san francisco ad firm and so there's this notion of constantly trying to sell and that's something that i wanted to incorporate into the text into something resembling a in uh, in, in, in something resembling a postmodern way where there's there are lists there's lots of language trying to do um, something near selling and being very aggressive mm -hmm. uh, and and sort of uh, nonstop. Yes, yes. Well, that comes through, okay. uh, Charles. And so we'll we'll take a short break now. And then when we come back, um, would you mind reading some of American Weather for us? I'd love us? to. That'd be great. And, and am I pronouncing it correctly? Actually, you're, you're the publisher at the Random House UK. It's the, the London... Uh, Harville Secker, is yeah. that that's mm -hmm. it? Okay, out of London. And this is we're we're talking today with Charles McLeod, his novel American Weather. Um, you can take a quick visit to Amazon and uh, get your copy on its way. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more Living Writers. <laughs> Thank you. 
all of us like the coats and cloak rooms. And if you rise again, take a form I know. The river will boil and overflow, and the houses you're haunting will tremble with temporal doom. I don't know about you, but I am hell-bent. I know what it is that I must do. Close your eyes when we kiss. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Charles McLeod joins us via phone from California. Um, <laughs> welcome back, Charles. Thank you. <laughs> and all you listeners out there. And, and a thank you uh, to Brian Delaney for engineering, making us sound, uh, sound good and matching us up over the, the ether. Um, so, Charles, American weather. Um, this book has been in the hopper for a while. Actually, you you had the short stories first, and then you began writing this this novel. Is is that right? That's right. Um, uh, my my former agent was able to sell my short story collection, uh, and then um, the novel, the short story collection, was done, and I, I had about sixty or seventy pages of American Weather done, and he was able to sell both of them to to Random House UK. So he sold the novel on, on a partial. And uh, and so I had it under contract, and then I had a certain amount of time to to get to to finish it. Um, and that was with um, Stuart Williams at Random yes. House UK. Yes. And and so for that, like, what sort of pressure was that like, or was that just what you needed to 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 push this? this novel through sure, for you? It, um, or, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't know that like I really baby? <laughs> uh, felt the pressure from a deadline. I, I'm someone that, uh, I'm at a point now where I, I really try to write absolutely every day. And so, and I, I knew where I wanted to go with this, uh, with, with the novel um, from, from the outset, at least in regard to plot. How I was going to to get there was was perhaps the most challenging part, and Stuart did uh, an, an amazing job of of sort of um, cu- cutting out some of the road that didn't need to be there in in the middle. We'll say uh, he's, it was it was absolutely wonderful working with him on the book. Um, so uh, it was just, oh, it so- was just sort of a matter of getting from those those first sixty seventy pages to. Um, uh, to the to the climax of 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 the plot, and uh, and I knew I even knew where I wanted it to to finish to to finish up. So um, the middle was was uh, was the toughest part, I suppose. And is when you when you were beginning this this idea um, for for American Weather, Charles, was it was it like did this image of Jim Haskin the the main uh, the main narrator? of the novel is that like did some guy come to you or what <laughs> like what what was your impetus or? i um you know i think a lot of uh a lot of the impetus for it it was started um 
pretty shortly. It was it was started very close to when um, the economy started to really tank in in two thousand and eight, and um, uh, you know California everywhere was feeling it. California where where I grew up uh, was was certainly feeling it, and um, I, I suppose I was uh, just sort of looking around at. at all, all the media and all, um, all the branding that that was on billboards and cars and buses and in magazines and on TV, et cetera, et cetera, and was wondering what was sort of going to happen to uh, perhaps even the visual role of these brands if if we truly entered into a, a recession. And um, and how it was that local, state, and federal municipalities were were going to function, which is um, unfortunately a question that seems to still be in some um, some mode of of, of positing today. Yeah. So, uh, it, in some ways, it was the novel's a satire, and and one of the the solutions that that I thought of in, in a, a a dark moment, I suppose, was <laughs> what if you put um, a condemned inmate's execution on television. It seems to me that uh, people might pay good money for that. Uh, and and while I hope that that isn't actually right, it it ultimately became sort of the central plot of the book that uh, Jim Haskin decides he, uh, the, the guy that owns the ad firm decides that he indeed does need some some money as uh, as his ad firm starts to uh, starts to uh, falter a little bit and as do his stocks. So he hashes um, a plan to to put. On, on TV, the execution of a, a condemned inmate at San Quentin State Prison. And so, so that and so that was like so. As you're mulling all of this over, and it's in sort of the 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 rivers or backwaters of your mind, this is the idea that emerges. Like, what if? Like, what something truly terrible? You televise uh, um, an inmate's execution. Yeah. And and so and then so so and so so then you think of well and who who is the man to do this? And you go about making him not completely evil, right? Like you're giving right. him qualities that say maybe was that so that was intentional, right? Charles Absolutely. like Absolutely. He's he's someone why that, he is, why that he is. in some ways knows better, but um, ultimately believes that that doesn't matter, that um, uh, the, the bottom line is, is profit margin over humanism. And uh, this, for, for me, I, I just, uh, that is, um, that is a, a sort of hierarchical order that seems to be happening um, a, a fair amount in, in this country right now. There, there is, uh, there is, uh, profit margin is more important than humanism, it, it, it seems to me, in, in many of the decisions that are being made. And, and, and uh, so I wanted to try to find a way to write about that through a satirical lens. And so, and, and this novel allowed you the time and the space to actually think about it and, and shape shape these ideas and, and to use some wicked humor in there too, or over the top um, 
moments. Absolutely. Uh, and it, uh, I mean, to, to me, that's how, that's how satire is, is sort of supposed to work, that you're, you're, you're sort of using um, hyperbole or exaggeration to comment on something that actually does exist. And while the actual scenario that might be used in this specific text uh, is may seem absurd or may not seem absurd to people. Uh, it, to me, reflects this idea that it is um, sort of profit and, and logo and um, corporation before the individual. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's too bad to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when did you then know that this was the vehicle needed would be a novel, like this wouldn't be one of the short stories? Um, yeah, it, it, you know, it's something that actually started out as, as possibly being a short story or being, um, a novella within the collection. Mm -hmm. And I got to 50 or 60 pages and realized that there was really an awful lot more that I could talk about here, um, that, that I just sort of wouldn't have room for in some ways in in even a longer short story or even a novella i thought so um so it 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 sort of became a novel from that and i i really it was something it was a project that i i wanted to pursue even though i hadn't really written anything satirical before um uh and and so i just kept going <laughs> that's pretty brave <laughs> <laughs> it, there, there were moments where um, I think, especially with, with doing satire for the first time, there's uh, or, or and really anything um, with with humor. I would say where one it, it it's easy to lose one's ob objectivity. I think, and this applies both to to satire and to humor. And I think to anyone working on their first uh, longer work, you know, uh, short stories. If you're doing something that's uh, 10 to 20 pages long that's that's short enough where it's it's sort of manageable in in regard to all craft elements uh plot character you, you the uh, one can sort of see the bookends i think pretty quickly but with something that seems to with with a with a 300 page story it it it, it can seem like sprawl at times and uh figuring out how to keep things um I guess sort of intact uh, and and still keep the narrative going is it's it's a different challenge for a novel than it is uh, a short story definitely. And and how are you able to? Because <laughs> I believe you um, definitely. <laughs> and and are you? Is it something that you can articulate like those challenges, Charles? Like the, like because is that maybe um, why Connor, the son, um, Jim Haskins' son, comes in in different chapters and has a voice on Absolutely. the page? Absolutely. Um, uh, Jim's son appears throughout the book in I think uh, maybe seven chapters total, and he is away at boarding school on the East Coast and is is very much used as sort of humanistic counterpoint to. Jim's uh, uh, morbid, satirical, uh, if at moments apathetic lens on society. Uh, it, it. I was concerned that <clears throat> dark satire for 300 pages straight had the, the poss without any sort of any sort of um, counterpoint was going to be. Uh, too, too much for readers to take. So I wanted there to be 
a voice in there that that had a different perspective and and it's and the generational difference is important for me too i i do think that issues of of environmentalism and of eco consciousness and sustainability are ones that are at the forefront for the next generation much more than they are for uh, arguably even you or i but certainly people who are uh 45 50 55 these these weren't sort of i would contend uh, fully realized national concerns, let's say, in the Reagan era, right? There wasn't a lot of, I, I don't know that Reagan was necessarily a, um, a, a big, a big voice in the green community. No, no. And yeah. he certainly has, um, been, what is it that, um, that brushing of like what they do in magazines, like sort of sure. brushing through much of his, <laughs> making him look a bit different in his, yeah. the, the Reagan myth that, that we're, we're left with. Yes. Absolutely. One of the favorite things I've seen, this is slightly off topic, but one of the favorite uh, things that I've seen with with branding recently is um, uh, editors going back in and putting new ads into old movies. Oh, so if, oh, um, if, there's, if there's a movie that came out in the theaters, by the time that it goes to DVD, um, if they're walking by a billboard, if characters in said <sighs> film are walking by a billboard or something like that, they, they can actually go back into the film and add, uh, add billboard space for any product that is about to be coming out. So This is a tricky business. It it's, really is. Because that used to be part of like what created setting. Like it was part of like the the moment so you would know the historical context or moment Absolutely. of the story itself. And now the brand is, um, hmm. It's just consistently updated. Yeah. That, yes. Thank you for that disturbing news, Charles. Thank you. <laughs> well, and there's, I, I mean, and there has been some um, comment like uh, on Amazon.com with people, some people saying, what a cynic, you know, to write this book, American Weather, sure. you know, and so, and to them, what do you say? That <laughs> um, uh, I certainly am a cynic in in in, re, in regard to I, I would say many policy decisions uh, and and sort of uh, societal decisions that are being made uh, at at this juncture in, in this country. It's um, it's. Uh, it, 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 and you know, I'll say, I'll say, in fairness for for listeners, that it, that it is a very dark and and gloomy book in some ways. But I'm my hope is is that it's a book that makes one um, perhaps look differently at some of the things that we we assume uh, are status quo in today's society, or at least look at how those things weigh on 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 us psychologically and and perhaps emotionally. But uh, it, it, I don't know, I feel like um, a certain amount of cynicism can be healthy uh, if, if one just sort of buys into whatever is being uh, offered. I don't know, I don't know that, that, that that breeds critical thinking, and I don't know that that necessarily breeds any sort of in, innovation in an individual or, or in the collective consciousness of a society. And I think that those things are vital for any nation state to continue to prosper. Yes, and well said. And so glad you said it here at WCBN FM in Ann Arbor because that's, yeah, exactly. We yeah. need some free thinking and some free form so that you remember like what makes you human. 
Definitely, right. definitely. I mean, we're so conditioned. And, and one of, um, I mean, to go back to the the language of the novel again a little bit, it it is in many ways a a sort of dehumanizing mode of storytelling, and it's one that is is very much meant to be. I mean, Jim Haskin is in some ways sort of a personification of the great selling you know machine, and uh, and so I really wanted to have the prose try to reflect that that it's. Um, it's it's sort of going 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 there are um moments of extremely long sentences or long lists uh and uh i well that can be i i think at 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 first perhaps a little a little difficult to digest i think that it's it's sort of like entering any text you have yes. to get used to the voice and then then you're in there and it's okay um Yes, and we'll hear some. We're gonna. We'll take Charles. We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back and um, and let's hear some. Okay. From American great. Weather. Um, okay. So uh, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T Hetzel. Today on the program, Charles McLeod, his novel American Weather. We'll be right back. Concrete miles, it's your yawning conscience and your lawyer's smile. It's an occupied country falling at the mouth. No smoking gun, no mushroom cloud. It's a military mother with a boy in hell. And it's a flag draped casket down an oil well. It's an Argentine schoolgirl gagged and bound. It's a torture camp, it's a long way down. It's the constant racing shock of now. And it's the whole damn world turned inside out. Alright. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Charles McLeod joins us from sunny California. Um, <laughs> so, Charles, is it indeed sunny out there? It is indeed sunny out here. It's always it's always nice in California. And that's where you, you said that's where you grew up. That's where you were born yes, and bred. I was, I was born in Texas, but I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then, and then you made your move to Iowa for undergrad. I did. I have. Um, uh, I've lived a lot of places. Michigan um, ha- hasn't made the list yet, but I'd. I'd, I'd, I'd it you, sounds great. You're open to it. I absolutely. Um, but <laughs> Iowa, Illinois, Cape Cod, Virginia, uh, the Bay Area. Uh, yeah, all sort of all over. 
But California is it's definitely I mean that that makes sense then because you you dedicate the book for my family, my friends in the state of California. Yes. Absolutely. Um California uh is is really a, a pretty wonderful place and it's uh yeah. It, it, at the same time, it's it's I think really sort of I mean the, the whole country is struggling right now, as is California. Uh, and um, uh, I don't know. I think uh, with with this novel, it it uh, for whatever reason um, in in going through it, I really sort of I think relied on the Bay Area to to provide enough settings and enough. Sparks of imagination to get me, to get me through it. So, uh, so I wanted to thank it in the book mm. for, for that. <laughs> that. That is lovely, and and um, and and let's hear some of it. I mean, you you said in in when you you sent my copy, Charles. You said, "May it make you laugh until you cry." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I feel. Uh, I feel like a uh, you know satire. There, there, there definitely should be um, uh, a warning label. No. Yeah, <laughs> per, perhaps you know. I, I mean, I know that that Orwell, when when he um, when he published what was ultimately 1984, he was going to call it. Um, I, I believe it was supposed to be 1954, and publishers decided that that was far too close to the present of of when the book was actually written, and so they 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 actually moved it. Wow. They actually moved it forward in time to 1984. So I, I feel like oftentimes uh, satire of it is too sort of close, closely directed to uh, issues of the moment. Um, can can worry people a little bit. Well, it's meant to. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it very much is meant to. Um, I mean, not not to uh, not to the point of 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 necessarily wagging one's finger at at society. Although maybe the book does that at moments too. But to to uh, make people aware of of I guess what's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's art. Right? That's yes. one of. That's... Yes, indeed. And well, let's. Let's hear some, Charles. Okay. Um, so this is the beginning of, of Chapter 6, and uh, um, it's, it's just a, a short part of, of, of a scene here. Um, uh, okay. My name is Jim Haskin, and I am an ad on TV. The ceiling in my den is 20 feet high. The overlong room has a nook for my desk. Its windows face west, and Lake Merritt is lit, a nice string of lights strung around it. Above the fireplace mantle is a plasma flat screen, 65 by 54 inches. Let us all gather for this nightly drug, this light without heat, this machine that transforms and also disallows transformation. Let us regale and absolve it, and in doing so, regale and absolve ourselves, our dreams numbed, our sins forgotten. Let us believe its fictive representations, for if we believe in our true of faith, we can do what man sought since he hunted mammoths, reinvent nature. And crops can be sown where there were once trees, and towns can spring up next to ports on our rivers and oceans, and ore from the earth can be reaped and shaped, and things can be made that connect these port towns, and in turn allow for more towns between them, as the more things we build, the more we believe that we matter, that were it not for us, there wouldn't be rain, light, or lichen, that our explicit schema of epics and ways is what lends the ants 
legs and the walrus its fins and the bushes their berries and all of our waste goes magically away and the meat that we eat is red cubes under plastic let us remember we're better than beasts let us remember that god will sweep it up later for were this not the case we wouldn't have brains that knew of his love and his wrath and the ways to synthesize plastics and shape glass in a manner to be flat and thin and make circuit boards smaller and fit more pixels per inch and dream up docudramas for the 8 p.m. Sunday slot on the American Broadcasting Channel. It is with God's grace, my lambs, that we are given culture, that next type of nature, and we must not forget all that culture provides and forless mankind and the image of God created television. Sexy Assassins is Nielsen Gold, a trio of trollops solves crimes wearing little. On tonight's episode, Lana, the adventurous blonde, is kidnapped by an Angolan terrorist cell and kept locked in a basement where water drips on the chest of her teal PVC corset. Natalia, the brunette, and Mina, the redhead, must save their trap friend by having their nerdy male sidekick, Ben, hack into a global positioning satellite. This ruffles the feathers of Colonel James Holt their patriarchal government liaison. The agent's codename is Project Amazonia, a privately funded special ops unit. When Uzbeki jihadists try to poison the wells of middle America, it's Project Amazonia that's called in to stop them. When an ambassador goes missing in the jungles of Brazil, it's up to the ladies to parachute in wearing camouflage bodysuits. Natalia's the leader, Mina is artsy, Lana would rather be dating. Each episode's plot is roughly as complex as a maze on a kid's dinner mat at a Denny's. Conflict, crisis, let resolution, D-cups, private enterprise saving the Fed's faulty ways. Reagan is gone, but his ways live on in the box in your, res- in your residence. Ten minutes into the Angola virus and after Lana is stuffed in a van while out jogging in pink velour skimpies comes the first set of commercials. My latest creation, ISCI code AMWE8872, is in pole position. It is stupendous. It is unique. It is a polar bear drowning. A full 20 seconds of real-time footage for white-furred animal starving leaves its small bit of ice flow to dive into the sea and find krill. Its mind now is slave to its stomach. It can't get back up and out of the water. We watch it. The long claws clamp down, dig in, but the bear does not have the strength left in it. Three seconds of struggle, seven seconds. Arctic water is some of the clearest in the world. Here is the white corpse sinking. One pan to the next ice flow just off the screen, the bear's cub calling and watching, circling the flow, stopping, circling. Cue overlay of the web address for Habitat for Humanity. Cue fade out, end of commercial. The next ad, this one for dryer sheets, comes on, taking the minds of a majority of viewers. The bear dying will be unremembered, fever dream, lost as it is in the brightly hued nightly parade of televised images. And should the bear's image bob up at points later when the viewer is driving to the drive-thru, the office, there will be one of two possible outcomes. The first is that our driver, torn through by guilt and only now realizing it, will indeed give to my client. 
The second outcome is an overwhelming feeling of worthlessness and or self-loathing, soul trauma, after which our driver must do something to forget that the car that he, she is driving is wrecking the soil, the ocean, the planet. And so he, she goes shopping, buys something nice, something cobbled overseas, something sleek, something fast and independent, something that gives the powerless power, the new Bluetooth device, the red diamond fishnets, the side zip cap length white leather boots, the black automatic weapon. There is nature and culture, the bear of them all. You can have one, but you cannot have both. I profit regardless. Now back to sexy assassins. Thank, thank you, Charles. Oh, thanks. Sorry if that was <laughs> no, no. Long. That was that was relentless. So, and <laughs> yeah, and um, there, there are moments. Uh, um, you, you know, Jim Haskin, the, the protagonist, has sort of moments at the beginning of, of every fifth chapter or something like work that that work as um, something near sermons. Uh, he was he yes. was orphaned uh, and then grew up at a place called Mr. Han's Home for Well-Behaved Boys, which is a sort of combination um, Protestant uh, foster care center slash, slash almond farm. And uh, so a, a lot of these moments <laughs> are um, at the beginning of these, these chapters chapters are meant to incorporate um, something resembling a, a sort of um, Calvinist-type doctrine in, in them. And Mr. Hand, of course, being something like the hand of God in the sure. life, uh, right? In absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And so even <clears throat> there, when you were explaining um, the, the name of the boy's home and what it was for, um, even by the time you reached the end of, because it has multiple functions, and you said, and an almond farm, like then there's this humor that then you have to sort of laugh because it's like these, it's all these things. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and Absolutely. That's, that's how American weather is uh, working um, throughout. And, and I mean, it is, it's sometimes it is, it's hard because it is relentless with the polar bear imagery. Sure. You know? and <laughs> but sure. Then, um, but it's, it's strange. To, I mean, I, I feel like it's, uh, I, I find it very strange to, and this isn't necessarily about polar bears, but to have um, now essentially three wars happening that, yes. that America is part of. And um, they're all so far away and, and you never see any images of any dead. Uh, if, if one watches the PBS NewsHour, something like that, they have their moment of silence when more troops um, uh, are killed, and and you see their face. But but we don't um, we don't ever see any of uh, the sort of true violence or 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 gore of um, of of those conflicts. And I feel like uh, America's collective consciousness would view things like that differently were there to be. Um, uh, exposure to to the more graphic side of it, and I don't mean to just be grisly, but I, I do think that there's um, there's some censoring that's done there. Oh, definitely, and there there are some like recently I, I'm I'm blanking out on the names now, but some films where like a filmmaker has been placed in Afghanistan with the troops, and like there's there's documentaries, and sure. so so there are those those films out there that you can maybe ask for on Netflix or, or search for, or if you're lucky to live in a city that that's big enough that brings, brings these smaller films through. But, um, but you're right. Like on the, on the big platforms that people have access to, um, night after night, hour after hour, a 24 hour cycle. Um, no, 
no yeah. presence, zero. Uh, uh, very much so, very much so. If, and and I feel like for for that demographic, the, the larger demographic that is just sort of watching um, cable news affiliates or or you know local news affiliates, there the, those films definitely do exist, but. Uh, where where people are going to go to find them, um, I, I'm less sure of. Certainly Netflix, absolutely. Um, but there's it it's uh, it requires uh, proaction on on the part of the individual. These are these are not that is not the side of these conflicts that the average person will see if they don't seek them out themselves. Yes. And and your uh, and your character Jim Haskin, your your fictional character, is in the business of of keeping people numbed and and somewhat uh, look over here, look over there, distracted. Yes, uh, definitely, yes. definitely. <laughs> uh, and and I think that. Um, um, uh, in, 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 I mean, in, that's part of what um, an, an ad company's job is, right, is that it works, uh, the, the marketing and advertising in some ways have a potential to be sort of a remora on, on capitalism shark, and they, they kind of clean it and, and aid it, and uh, it's, it, that they benefit each other. Um, I'm glad you got Habitat for Humanity in there, though. We'll yes, give one more uh, plug for absolutely. Them. <laughs> and and as much as much um, sort of uh, I don't know, perhaps um, gloom or or um, uh, as, as there are at moments in the book, there are also um, you know there are, there there are some offered uh, solutions or or. Uh, organizations that do good stuff too, and that's a large part of Connor, uh, Jim's son, is him figuring out sort of what he needs to do in his own life to be part of the solution as opposed to part of a problem as he sees it. Yes, We're, we'll take a short break and then we'll hear more from Charles McLeod, his novel American Weather, out this June with Harville Secker, London Random House UK. Short break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Charles McLeod, his novel, American Weather, out with Random House UK's Harville Secker. Um, Charles, thanks so much for, for being on the program today. It's of gone course. By, Thank you for having me. It's gone. It's just flown by here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I wanted to point out, thanks for reading from American Weather, so that because we'd been talking about it, and sometimes it feels so in the abstract. But I think now people have a sense of the voice in this. And and I love how you mentioned that it's it's possible like where you're 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 kind of entering this this world of the voice. And it's one of your main interests in, in fiction writing too, creating this this whole new world. And then you become immersed in it and it becomes the norm. And that's the experience of the novel. 
Absolutely. Um, voice is is probably the the aspect of writing that I am the most interested in, and that I um, uh, probably simultaneously work the hardest at and get the most pleasure out of uh, being able to to craft a voice that that feels um, legitimate and and authentic and is is sort of fun to work with is uh, is great. And and you can tell this this very close attention to language from the passage, chapter six that you you read to us. That's Jim Haskins speaking, um, like these moments, this light without heat, talking about the TV screen and our dreams numb. The more things we build, the more we can believe that we matter. Um, and this rhythm within the language, um, <laughs> uh, not for us, there wouldn't be rain, light, or lichen playing with it. There, yeah. I can see that. I can see your your poet's roots as well. Absolutely, and I, I still read um, uh, as much poetry as I do fiction. Uh, I, I love it, and uh, it, it it's it, it's um, so important to me, and and always has been, and always will be. Even as a, I mean, almost especially as a prose writer, I think that it's it's important, probably at moments, uh, to as as a as a fiction writer, uh, as a short story writer, and a novelist to. To kind of be reading outside of what you're doing. Um, uh, Philip Roth was just in a, just just interviewed, and he'd he'd said that he pretty much didn't read fiction anymore at all. Uh, that he was he's only reading history books and biographies at this point. Um, and uh, I'm I'm sure there's there's some valid reason that he's doing that. For me, though, uh, I think that there's moments where I want to be able to to sort of focus on on voice and language exclusively, and and going and reading um, Ashbery or Levine or uh, Charles Wright or whomever uh, is reading reading poetry as opposed to prose, you get to kind of um, uh, take out voice and and language and look at them exclusively uh, without... without dealing with sort of um, the other aspects, of yeah, the other conventions growth. muscling in. A, absolutely, a bit. absolutely. And, and I think that 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 can only be beneficial to and, to prose writers. Hopefully, and you bring up Philip Levine, so we yes. should say congratulations, Michigan to Philip. boy. Yeah. <laughs> and now um, it's fantastic. Going, I'm I'm thrilled. Our, uh, our new poet it, laureate. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Congratulations, Mr. Levine. And and wait, you were saying you were thrilled. Go go, go on. Uh, he's, I've I've always been a big big fan of his work, and he's someone that uh, I think um, uh, just embodies for me, uh, regardless of of almost even what genre he's working in, of of just um, uh, the, the ethic of writing. You know, he he seems like someone who just gets up and does it, and uh, it, the, the books are wonderful. His poetry is wonderful, and uh, and anyone um, who 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 doesn't know him yet should go check him out. Yes, and yes, and born in Detroit. In, that's right. In that's right. And with many, many, many poems about Detroit. Yes, yeah. I, I, the, his yeah, he's known for the like. He's definitely a a poet that that writes about the the working class like mm-hmm. the, this yes absolutely uh i mean i think that it's uh, i think that that maybe we're at a point um as 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 a society where there's a, a pretty large demographic that is um intimidated by poetry that you know maybe they read something in in high school and they haven't necessarily read anything um 
anything since then. And I just feel like Levine is someone where, regardless of um, what one's individual background or knowledge of poetry is, uh, being unfamiliar with it uh, entirely or or knowing it intimately, Levine is someone who who's who's loved by uh, all along that spectrum. It's. It's, I, I think he's a great choice, and I'm, I'm thrilled for him. Charles, would you mind if I read one of his poems then? I would, would love that, that. that. Okay, so here's, here's a poem uh, by Philip Levine, My Father's the Baltic. Along the strand stones, busted shells, wood scraps, bottle tops dimpled, and stainless beer cans. Something began here a century ago, a nameless disaster, perhaps a voyage to the lost continent where I was born. Now the cold winds of March dimple the gray incoming waves. I kneel on the wet earth looking for a sign, maybe an old coin, an amulet against storms, and find my face blackened in a pool of oil and water. My grandfather crossed the sea in 04 and never returned, so I've come alone to thank creation as he would never for bringing him home to work, defeat, and death, those three blood brothers faithful to the end. You sell Prishkulnik, I bless your laughter, thrown in the wind's face, your gall, your rages, your abiding love for women and money and all that money never bought, for what the sea taught you and you taught me, that the waves go out and nothing comes back. Yeah. Well, so so that's congratulations again to Philip Levine. Absolutely. And, and and Charles, so many congratulations for this this American weather. This it's like like it's 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 found it's a place in the UK with this really beautiful like the cover when people can go check this out on Amazon to see um, how how the book is being delivered. And, yeah. And um, with an incredible and sort of haunting image. <laughs> too on the front cover i read it yeah i was i've, I've been carrying it around and i've been th- feeling extra tough as i i carry that's it around right. that's um, right that's right if um if people just like carrying around books with skulls on them you should totally get the book because it has a skull on it and it'll make you feel tough and exactly that's important it is it is and then so uh, did you have a, a hand in picking this uh no I didn't. You know, they sent me, um, uh, Random House UK sent me an early mock-up of it uh, that was that was very similar. In, in an attempt to describe it, it's, it's essentially um, uh, a businessman, a guy in a suit, holding a book up in front of his face, and then on the cover of the book is a skull. So where his head would be is a skull. And um, uh, they sent me sort of an early mock-up that they did of it. And, and and I loved it, and uh, and yeah, I I mean I really think that uh, imagistically it it it's it, it captures the the mood and the tone and and what the book's about very very well. And that feels good because it's like the the where the book is has found its its home for now. And I know things are in they also change like books are could find like it could find a home in picador it could you know and, sure. and, and as it uh, and have a a u.s publication date um as well and uh, but it's it feels like they've they've recognized what you're up to and they've really keyed into it so it's uh, it's something that they're they're valuing definitely and um as uh, it's just so nice to to have a book where uh, you know you write it and then there's always this concern that they're going to put um 
that there's going to be something on the cover that it's it's either it, it doesn't make sense to you or it, it, it you feels... just don't find it um i don't know visually appealing for lack of a better term or, and um, or feeling deeply wrong somehow yes absolutely absolutely where where you've written a book about giraffes and it's all aardvarks on the cover <laughs> or something um and uh so i don't know i i'm really happy with it it's uh it's it, and that's you know that's that's again a part that at least for me was um, uh, was out of my control. So to to know that someone else had sort of read the manuscript and been able to to convert it uh, into in, into the, into a visual idea was was so cool. And and Charles, in our closing moments, what's on deck now for you? What are you working on? Um, I have completed uh, my next my next novel manuscript, which is called The Last of a Mastiff, and. Um, I'm working on uh, the first novel uh, after that, and and um, a couple of stories. I hesitate to say it's it's to another story collection point yet, but there's a couple individual stories that I'm working on, and uh, and towards the what, what what is the end of my summer um, is uh, the, the the first chapter of that next novel is done. So uh-huh. just just moving ahead. Well, that sounds just right. Charles, and thanks so much for being on Living Writers today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved talking with you. Um, And so you've been listening to Living Writers today on the program, Charles McLeod, his first novel, American Weather. Um, In 2012, look for National Treasures upcoming, and then thereafter, The Last of the Mastiffs. Um, Thanks again to Brian Delaney. Thanks to you all for listening in Ann Arbor, Seattle, Florida, and beyond. (laughs) Until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. Say I'm